This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. In partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network, we bring you our deep dive town hall series, learning about key issues Indivisibles care about. Today, progressive taxation in Washington State. While most residents know we have the most upside down tax system in the nation, they may not know why or what can be done to change that. In this town hall, we are joined by three of the state's most prominent voices in the fight to make our state's taxation fairer and more equitable. Misha Wershkel of the Washington State Budget and Policy Center, Treasurer Mackley of Invest in Washington and Sharon Navas of the Equity in Education Coalition. This was recorded live on Tuesday, February 23rd. Hello, everybody. We are so grateful to have you all with us here tonight for this deep dive into progressive taxation. And it is our promise to you that we will make this engaging and fun. Uh, I had a great time learning about all of this in preparation with our three tremendous guests, and we hope to bring that same spirit to you. And so I will introduce our wonderful guests tonight. Uh, first is Treasure Mackley. She is the executive director of Invest in Washington Now. Hello, uh, hello to you, Treasure. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. Sharon Navas is the co-founder and executive director of the Equity and Education Coalition and is on the steering committee for All in Washington. Sharon, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. It's always good to talk to uh, well, you're a native New Yorker. I'm somebody who spent uh, a large portion of my life there. So uh, we speak sort of the same language. Misha Wershkel is the executive director of the Washington State Budget and Policy Center, and we are just so happy to have her with us tonight. Misha, how are you? Doing wonderful. So glad to be here. Thank you. So let's just jump right in. And uh, I, I feel like I, I want to just kind of do some brass tax work as we begin. So we know that we have the most upside down tax system in the nation. And I'd like to start by talking about what that means and how we got there. So Misha, let's start with you. Um, where does the bulk of our state revenue currently come from and who pays what? That's a great place to start. And our, you know, our state budget is funded through a range of different revenue sources. Um, sales tax is a huge component, our business and occupation tax, property tax, all of these ways that we pay together flow into the state general fund and then pay out to pay for things largely our public schools, healthcare, higher education, um, many of the services that we all rely on. I want to um, go just a little bit deeper there, though, and talk about really when it comes down to those taxes, sales tax, business and occupation tax, who's really paying those taxes? And I have a couple of um, charts that we love at the Washington State Budget and Policy Center. You'll see these all the time when we um, when we are talking about these issues. Um, and so I'm going to show those and talk through them in case you can't see me. So let me just really quick see if I can navigate that. And I will just say for our listening audience, for the podcast and for terrestrial radio, we will talk you through what is on all of these charts. So the first is um, a bar chart that shows kind of who pays based on your income level. So the um, poorest 20% of Washingtonians, those earning less than $24,000 per year, are paying 17.8% of their income in state and local taxes. Um, the wealthiest Washingtonians, the top 1%, are very far down at the other end of the spectrum, paying just 3% of their income in state and local taxes. 
We talk a lot about our tax code being upside down. What you'd really want to see here is folks who have the ability to pay more actually contributing to fund the investments that benefit us all. Um, and people who are experiencing poverty are not able to contribute paying less. And so Washington actually has the most regressive tax system in the country, the most upside down, um, and the most kind of out of whack compared with what you'd want to see. Um, just to kind of put that in concrete terms, we're talking about the lowest income Washingtonians paying six times more of their income in state and local taxes than the wealthiest 1%. Um, really uh, a very problematic uh, situation here and others can talk through how we got here and why. I wanna share um, building on this some kind of additional analysis that we've done at the Budget and Policy Center to really look at who pays by race. So we know that economic status and racial equity, these things are not completely disconnected from one another, um, similar to um, immigration status and other ways that um, folks are uh, other divisions among us. Um, so what I wanna show here, and this is this chart has a lot of data on it. So in many ways, it's easier just to hear me talk through it. But when you look at who pays in Washington state, state and local taxes by race, you see a picture that really shows that black, American Indian, Alaska Native, Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and Hispanic Washingtonians um, really bearing a disproportionate share of our state and local taxes. In fact, what it shows here is that basically if you're a white Washingtonian, you're about equally likely to be in the wealthiest, um, be a wealthy Washingtonian or be a low income Washingtonian. You're kind of spread evenly across. If you're Hispanic, Black, American Indian, Alaska Native, or Hawaiian Pacific Islander, or multiple different races, you're much, much more likely to be in that lowest income um, segment of the population, and therefore much more likely to pay a higher effective tax rate. Um, how this actually breaks out when you look at basically what is the effective tax rate by race, what you see is really different experiences for different people based on race. Um, Hispanic, uh, American Indian, Alaska Native, Hawaiian Pacific Islander um, populations paying almost a full percentage point higher than white Washingtonians. And these numbers may seem like um, maybe it doesn't make a big difference. And so our team actually calculated, what does this mean in terms of the actual income, the actual money in the pockets of people in our state? And it's actually about a $500 on average difference between the highest and the lowest income. And so what that means is that, you know, basically you have money coming out of the pockets of Hispanic, Black, American Indian, Alaska Native, and Hawaiian and Pacific Islander households um, at a faster rate than it comes out of those white households. And that leads to our tax system actually perpetuating racial inequalities instead of being a tool for justice. Um, so that I'll stop there and uh, um, happy to talk more about this as we move through. Well, I mean, and, and I think it's worth pointing out that $500 when you're low income makes an extraordinary difference uh, in, in your life and the things that you have to uh, decide between uh, at that you know, at lower income levels. Uh, before we move on from this, I will just say the data that I have, and maybe you can back me up on this, about 60% of the state's tax base comes from sales and excise tax. Is that correct? Yep. 
Okay. So, uh, Treasurer, I want to shift over to you. Um, most people know, as, as we, it, it's almost a bit of a mantra among progressives here in the state, that uh, we know that our taxation is regressive here, but we may not know mm-hmm. why. So why do we have the most regressive tax system in the nation? Well, that's such, that's such a great question. And what's interesting is not only do we have the most regressive tax system in the in the nation, you know, we are number 50. So that means we are below states like Texas and Nevada and Oklahoma. And really, it comes down to, you know, what Misha said earlier, that the bulk of our revenue streams come from three different buckets. We, they come from sales tax, they come from property taxes, and they come from uh, B&O business taxes. Um, in other states um, and in other parts of the country, there are folks that are, you know, there's income tax, there's taxes on uh, stocks and bonds and intangible properties and all sorts of other types of taxes. Um, in Washington state, we don't have any of those taxes on the books. So when we look at the way that we're bringing money in, we are really looking at only, you know, those kind of three buckets worth of work um, and, and, and money. And that's one of the reasons why we're really seeing low and middle income folks paying the lion's share of taxes. Um, what is really interesting about this is that, um, you know, when we look at the resources that we need here in Washington state, this isn't a new problem. Our tax system, this isn't something new that's happened within the last couple of years or the last five or 10 years. This is a system that we've actually been living in, and uh, we've been living with for quite some time. Um, and when we kind of go back and look at some of the previous legislation from, from many, many, many years ago, it's, it, it, it's not clear that these, all of these taxes were meant to be on the books forever in perpetuity. Um, uh, So we have some opportunity here. We really have some opportunity to think about how can we build a better system that is more just, more fair, and more equitable. And I think at this particular moment in time that we have right now with the pandemic, uh, what we're seeing is we're seeing all of these pieces kind of the wool get pulled, you know, being pulled back. We're seeing all of these being laid bare and and really demonstrating what these issues are. And we're really trying to uh, starting to see a need um, uh, to adjust and build a more equitable and more fair tax system. I want to drill down on that idea of how mm-hmm. the, the pandemic has uh, really laid bare a lot of these inequities. And we'll do that in a moment. But really what, what I hear you saying is that the, the system really was never conceived to be a holistic tax system, that it's always been a piecemeal right. approach. And that's why we have the structure we have. So, Sharon, let's bring you into the conversation uh, and talk a little bit about what is meant by progressive revenue. So for All In for Washington, what we mean by progressive revenue is that it is it is a revenue system in which uh, people pay their fair share of the of their um, not income, but they pay a fair share into the system. We all know that we um, we drive on the same roads. We most of us go to the same public schools. We um, you know we uh, depend on the local fire department, police department, um, all of those things, and all of those things go into one big bucket. And what we are re- beginning to realize is that the people that make the least amount of money pay the most in terms of percentage of ratio of what they make to what they pay, right? So we have, um, 
you know, and also we have, we're the home to millionaires and billionaires here. And Mm -hmm. there's no uh, accounting for how much they pay into the system. Um, And and I think that's, um, it's a shame. And also it goes against the the very narrative that we have in this state, which is that we're a progressive state that moves some of the issues, uh, the social issues forward, like um, you know, like uh, uh, legalization of marijuana and same-sex marriages, and and you know, at the same time that we're moving social uh, issues forward, and, and we're leading on that in the state, in the country, um, we're also asking the folks that make twenty-four thousand dollars a year to pay seventeen percent of that money into the state tax system. You're getting to the notion of fairness, which I really want to get into uh, in a big way in just a second. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, what, what you're saying is that our taxes, our budgets are really a reflection of our values. And if we consider ourselves to be a progressive blue state, we're not living up to that. Uh, Misha, I don't want to get into a protracted discussion about this, but I do want to ask why Washington is only one of nine states that does not have an income tax. Why is that? Well, it's interesting because Treasurer did start to tell the history, and the history is that Washington state voters did pass a income tax, and it was struck down in a strange kind of course of events back um, many decades ago. Uh, lots of drama and intrigue with the Supreme Court at that time, including, I believe, one of the Supreme Court justices dying before the, um, before the ruling, and um, anyway, you can read all about it. And um, it was uh, something that was very, um, it was, that was part of what was intended to be the foundation for the tax in Washington state, the tax system in Washington state. And because of that kind of blip in history, what happened was exactly what Treasurer said, you know, all of these half measures sort of put in place intended to be temporary, maybe not intended to really be that kind of holistic picture of our tax code. Um, and that's what we're left with today. And the system being kind of cobbled together over time incrementally with um, without really tackling these deep structural issues. And you see even, you know, over time, um, Uh, progressives advancing regressive revenue sources as ways to fund kind of public services and really saying that this is the only option we have in Washington state, which I I disagree with, not to go off on a tangent about it, Um, but really it was that kind of weird source of events in the 1940s um, and kind of the, the way that that led to income taxes being seen as kind of off the table in Washington state as a source of revenue. Well, like I said, I don't want to get too far off the the path here, um, but I think it's good to provide that sort of context because I know that that's something that people wonder about, particularly people who just move here. Why is there no income tax? And so, you know, you, uh, Misha, you were touching on sort of the the, the racist undertones and some of the the racism that undergirds our tax system. In fact, the Budget and Policy Center recently had a blog um, that talked uh, extensively about that. Uh, Sharon, in your work with All In for Washington, uh, you believe in a system of what is called targeted universalism. Can you unpack that for us? What does that mean? Yeah, so um, so I work in education mostly. Uh, and what, when we talk about targeted universalism in All In for Washington, as well as other places, what we think about is who is the person, student, elder, senior, whatever, who is the person that's being served the least, right? The person that um, that doesn't have access to food, that doesn't have access to safe housing, that doesn't, who is that person that is the least furthest from any kind of justice? 
And what are the programs that we need to institute? What are the supports and sort of um, guardrails that we need to put around this person so that they can be elevated from poverty, from uh, from uh, housing instability, from violence, from, from all of these things? What are the things that we need to do to, to elevate that one person? Um, and once we do that, when we offer all of those programs to the rest of society who can pick and choose sort of an a la carte program support, if you will, um, we know that we can um, support all of our families and all of our residents to be um, to move out of poverty and, and sort of walk into that middle class. I, I, um, I strongly believe that if we take the most vulnerable of our communities and offer all of the supports that they need, um, we can then do the same for, for everyone in, in our communities and um, you know, make sure that they're, they're part of the village. Yeah, I mean, what you're getting at is sort of an idealized and uh, potentially realizable version of the social contract. Um, and, you know, uh, some opponents of progressive taxation argue that, hey, we have enough funding, so there's no need to change the structure. And so, again, I'm, I'll circle back to this idea of fairness. Um, Treasurer, I know that your organization does a lot of work on this front, and we'll talk about that in a second. But just on a practical mm -hmm. level, broad strokes, how do you feel that we get the message across to people, particularly in this legislative session, where we're going to talk about four very important pieces of legislation uh, in, in the third part of our show. Um, how do we get the message to uh, opponents and, and really people who may potentially be on board, that this is really ultimately about fairness. What are your thoughts? That's such a great question. And I think one of the things that we have hit on already is when we really think about our tax system and when we recognize that you know low-income folks are paying 17%, whereas folks at the very high income are oftentimes paying less than 3% of their income, that upside-down tax structure is... Um, is really compelling. The other piece about that is that it is also oftentimes not news to people. Most of us, as we are going about our daily lives, this is our lived experience. Um, particularly if we are lower, in, lower or middle income folks, we are really seeing that, yeah, we are paying the lion's share. So it's not so much about having to convince people of that. It's about giving people an explanation around why that's happening. And then being able to talk specifically this session around what are the things, what are the bills and the pieces of legislation that are being introduced that could help to fix that system, that could help build more equity and more fairness into that system. And luckily this year, there are a number of uh, different pieces of legislation that have been introduced. Yep. They're moving forward. And the number one thing we want folks to do is really to be able to pick up their phones, call their legislators, talk to their people that are down there in Olympia or via Zoom this year um, and representing them. Let them know that they're concerned about our tax system. Let them know that they're not okay with our upside down tax structure and that they expect, you know, our legislators, just like so many people all across our state, whether it's parents or business owners, everybody's had to bring new tools to bear. Uh, during this pandemic, um, you know, and as our legislature is going in and as they are looking at the budget crisis and the pandemic crisis that we are dealing with here in Washington state, we have a real opportunity to pass some of this progressive legislation, which will not only help people immediately, 
by making sure that we keep money flowing to our communities, but will also help us build a more equitable and fair system for the long haul. And you're getting me excited already. And I, I, I kind of want to jump to the end and talk about all the action <laughs> steps and all the uh, the pieces of legislation, but it'll hold. So we'll, we'll put a pin in that for a moment. But Misha, I want to kind of touch base with you because when we were preparing, I put this to you about how, you know, the, we know that what this, the, this argument is about how, hey, we got enough money. Why do we have to change the structure if the coffers are full? But you take issue with the idea that we have enough funding. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, there's two parts of, to this. So um, the first part is really just the simple math of how our tax revenues in our state compare to the size of our economy. Um, and it's a little bit like wonky and technical, but you know what you really want to have happen is your state budget sort of tracking with your overall economy, your overall population, so that there, as there are more kids in our public schools, for example, and you know as incomes are growing, that basically our state revenues are keeping pace. And that has not been the case in Washington state. So well, we've seen that with the McCleary you, decision, right? We saw that with the McCleary decision, sort of the chronic underfunding of public schools over time, um, and particularly the property tax limitations that contributed to that. Um, but also just across the board, you know, when you have a tax code that is built so much on the incomes of the lowest income people in our communities, the, the low-income low folks have not done well over the past few decades, right? And so um, what you have is basically a system where our revenues aren't keeping pace with our economy. And we had over $10 billion of cuts to the state budget during the Great Recession. Um, many of those technically after the Great Recession had ended, but those um, state revenues were still really sluggish. And we have not restored funding in many, many of the areas that were even cut during the Great Recession. The other thing I just want to say on this point is that, you know, oftentimes legislators, they look at, um, and advocates too, they look at their work around the state budget as a math problem. Like they're trying to solve the um, technicality of balancing the state revenues with state expenditures. And what we're asking folks to do is look at it really at a community need level. If you talk to really anyone, right, in our state right now, almost, and you ask, like, is are, do we have problems that need money to solve them? Um, the answer to that is overwhelmingly yes. There's a billion dollars of unpaid rent that Washingtonians are shouldering from the past year, that um, hunger is at an all-time high, poverty is an all-time high. Kids in public schools, Sharon could talk much more about this, but the fact that you know over the past year, families and kids, teachers, they've been struggling to really manage through this pandemic with online learning. And to say that, you know, what we should do is just um, look at what we did before the pandemic and then continue doing that and everything will be fine is almost kind of a laughable concept, I think. And so what really we're asking legislators to do, again, is not just look at that kind of math problem, uh, but really look at what is needed right now and then figure out how to have the revenues to meet that need in the most equitable way possible. And under really no measure are we doing that now in our state. Let's bring you back in, Treasure, to this, because I know you have a lot to say about this and your organization, which is quite new, I should mention, Invest in Washington, builds public support for progressive taxation, as I mentioned earlier. Now is the time to talk about how you do that. What are some of the uh, techniques and uh, campaigns that you use to, to, to build support for this? 
Great. Well, thank you. And as you are absolutely correct. We are a brand new organization, uh, Invest in Washington now. We were formed this year. And, you know, part of the reason that we were formed is because we knew that it was really important to be able to take this conversation around the need for progressive revenue and to take it out of you know, the hallways of Olympia and really get it out into the community, out to each one of our kitchen tables, um, to these Zoom calls this year, uh, to make sure that we're having those conversations with everyday Washingtonians. Um, because at the end of the day, um, everyday Washingtonians are the folks that, you know, both benefit from our budget um, and the services that are provided uh, by the government, but we are also the folks, as we've mentioned, you know, a number of times, um, you know, we are also the folks that help to fund that through our, our tax system. And so it's a, it's a conversation that each and every one of us really has a, has a key stake in. Part of the work that we're doing at Invest in Washington is a couple fold. First off, uh, we are really focused on uh, building and driving a, um, a public conversation. So right now we have a number of uh, digital ads and a di digital public awareness campaign um, that's on the digital airways. Um, so whether you're watching uh, TV on, on, you know, on, your, on your internet or you're online, you know, where so many of us are these days, we have a number of uh, you know, digital ads and, and pieces that are, that are going in that way. In addition, we have, you know, just some good on the ground, old fashioned organizing, connecting with folks in community. We're asking folks to sign our petition. We can go ahead and drop a link in the chat. This is one of the ways where we're really, you know, working to connect everyday Washingtonians with what's happening in Olympia and making sure that we're lifting up the voices of everyday folks um, and, and connecting that and really focusing that, um, doing some robust uh, session advocacy. So whether it's turning people out um, to join Zoom hearings for some of these critical pieces of legislation um, that we're seeing with some of like our house finance folks, uh, contacting their legislators, either giving them a, a ring on the phone or shooting them an email um, or sharing their stories. It's really about taking this conversation out into the public and lifting it up. And as I mentioned earlier, the fact of the matter is, is as we're talking to folks, most people really get this. They get that our tax system is upside down. They get that it's not working for them. And they are really clamoring for a more just, more fair system um, that will work for all Washingtonians. You mentioned earlier that you believe the pandemic has exposed how broken our tax system is. And I would love for you to yes. go a little bit more in depth on that. Talk about that, please. Yeah, well, you know, as, as Misha mentioned earlier, um, we have not funded all of our programs to the fullest level, even before the pandemic, right? There were so many programs that um, weren't, you know, weren't funded to 100%. There were still, we had so many folks that were still in need. With the pandemic, we have really seen uh, businesses struggling. We've been seeing families struggling. We've been seeing this increased need for healthcare. We have been seeing all of these pieces. And when we have a system with, um, you know, our tax system that's basically sales tax, property tax, and B&O tax, um, we're seeing revenue streams that are not as high. Um, uh, you know, so we're, we're seeing some challenges there. Misha mentioned earlier, you know, rent, all of these additional needs that are coming in. And as we're looking at that, and then we're looking at 
not only recognizing that we weren't fully funding our programs to begin with, but then we're seeing increased needs. We're seeing higher levels of unemployment. We're seeing folks needing rental assistance and, you know, the ability for healthcare and food and all of that stuff. And we're getting more and more and more needs on top of that. And then we're seeing that the only revenue option, the only revenue solutions that we have are these regressive systems on sales tax, property tax, B&O tax. This is where we're really seeing that we have a problem because not only are, do we have low and middle income folks and um, uh, the BIPOC community is really struggling, um, but we're also seeing that these are the same folks that need, you know, needing more services, but are also being asked to pay the lion's share and pay more in taxes. And that's just demonstrating a, a really flawed and inequitable system. And so in response to that, uh, your organization mm -hmm. is calling for the legislature to invest in public health, education, and infrastructure. Ideally, what would that look like and, and who would it help specifically? Well, that's that's a great question. And this is one of the pieces where, you know, as we think about the need for progressive revenue, um, you know, it really goes back to, it's not just about funding one program, it's really about making sure that we are funding all of the programs that we need adequately, um, uh, and we're taking care of our communities. We know that at the end of the day, for our economies, um, uh, you know, for our economy to be good, for our communities to thrive, we need to make sure that money's flowing back into those communities, that, you know, money's flowing into the hands of people so that folks can go into their local businesses, they can shop in their local businesses, they can take care of their, their families, they can put food on their table, and they can keep a roof over their head. All of those things are fundamental, and at the end of the day, we need to bring in more revenue options, uh, re more progressive revenue solutions so that we can fund those programs so that we can take care of everybody here in Washington. Well, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm billboarding it again. We're going to be talking about <laughs> some of those. And, and it's very exciting because some of these have made it uh, out of committee for the very first time. Um, Misha, let's bring you uh, back in here and talk about what your organization does. Talk briefly about what the Washington State uh, Budget and Policy, Policy Center is and what it does. Sure. Um, Washington State Budget and Policy Center is a small um, organization really rooted in work around research and analysis. You can tell from my sharing of the charts and the data that at our core, we're really about kind of um, pulling together that research and analysis and then working with partners like Sharon and the Equity and Education Coalition and All In for Washington and many different organizations across the state to pair that research and analysis with the real lived experience of people who are impacted um, by public policies, whether that is people who are impacted by our regressive tax code um, or maybe people who are um, have kids in public schools and um, see the benefits of investments in education and um, use those uh, two sources of data really to then advance public policies that um, we believe will advance the well-being of all Washingtonians. And so we have a particular focus on the budget because that is the most important piece of legislation that the legislature acts on each year um, and really impacts all of our lives in so many different ways, many that we're aware of and many that we're not aware of. Um, and so that's a particular focus of ours. To my understanding, that's the one thing that the legislature is constitutionally obligated to do is pass that budget each year. Um, like Treasure, your organization has been very very, very deliberate about the way that you want the state government to respond to the pandemic. And I'll just ask you very briefly, what's your assessment of how they performed so far? 
Yeah, we developed um, really in partnership with other organizations as well, a set of principles that live on our website that really are, are about holding us as an organization accountable, but also holding the legislature accountable to what's really needed in this moment. And um, we, I would say still to be seen. So there's some good stuff happening in the legislature so far. They're about, I don't know if I have my uh, dates right, but about five or six weeks into the legislative session. But the hard work is really ahead about really putting together a budget that meets this moment for um, our communities. And Governor Inslee has been, you know, really leading the way over the past year, um, working to protect public health and doing a lot for our communities. So I think there's been a lot of stuff happening through the executive branch, but the legislature is getting in the game right now and it's their opportunity to take it to the next level um, because there are these looming problems for Washingtonians, um, crises really. And we often talk about, you know, in many ways it's a triple pandemic, right? It's a public health pandemic, it's an economic crisis, for so, so many households. And there's the structural racism that is so deeply embedded in our public systems that is being exposed right now. Um, and, and it's up to the legislature to tackle all of those together. And they've got two months to do it. So I'm <laughs> counting on them. The clock is ticking. Yeah. And uh, your legislative agenda calls on lawmakers to do three things. And, and one of those buckets is exactly right there, what you're talking about. Um, but you also are calling for direct cash assistance to people who are most impacted by the crisis. I'll ask you, what are some of the ways that you would like to see that done and who would get the money? Um, great. And I'll jump to one of the policies we're going to talk about, too, which is the Working Families Tax Credit. But before I do that, I'll just say when we talked with folks at the start of the pandemic um, and honestly before the pandemic about what is needed right now, um, the answer was um, loud and clear cash. People were experiencing an economic crisis that was rooted in these other things that is still going on a year later. And what people needed most is really money to pay bills, right? That is really the looming crisis for so many households. And it's not the only crisis, but it's one there has been very little attention to in Washington state. Um, and you can see the impact really of cash assistance um, from the federal recovery package with the stimulus checks that really did an incredible job bolstering um, household incomes and bolstering our economy when those went out in 2020. Um, and so, yeah, we're calling for our state leaders to act and support the cash, support communities with cash in this moment, um, three ways. One is we have existing public systems like the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program that have been frankly gutted um, and really built on racist policies. Um, those are cash benefits and we need to be bolstering those in this crisis so that the families that are relying on DSHS for services right now get the assistance they need. Um, and are not jumping through hoops of time limits and all of those things that were put in place during the Great Recession. The second is a particular cash support for undocumented workers. So um, we know that undocumented households pay so much in state and local taxes. We actually have the most, um, the highest effective tax rates for undocumented immigrants in the country in Washington state. Um, and yet undocumented households have been almost completely left out of state and federal assistance efforts. So there's a particular effort, the Washington Worker Relief Fund and ongoing unemployment insurance efforts to provide cash support for undocumented workers. 
And then finally, and I'll wrap up on this, is the Working Families Tax Credit, which is a $500 boost provided through the tax code to um, hundreds of thousands of households in Washington state. $500 as a base credit plus $150 um, per each kid, up to three kids. And that is really the sustainable way that we can address the regressive tax code and get money in people's pockets um, to be able to support both, both individual needs, right? Families and households need those resources, but our economy needs it too. Treasure talked about keeping the money flowing. Getting money to low-income people is the way we will recover in Washington state. You are also looking to bolster investments in public services. Um, this is a bit of a long list, so I'll ask you just in interest of time if you could uh, to, to run it down rather quickly. But the agenda basically calls on lawmakers to bolster investments in public services that support well-being and divest from systems that cause harm. So just briefly, can you talk about what that looks like in practice? Yeah, um, you know, I think we we talk a lot about and we've talked here about the need for those investments, right, whether it's in our schools to be able to support uh, kids learning, uh, fund school counselors and other things to help um, families. Um, uh, to healthcare, right, our public health system clearly needs a more significant investment. Um, but it is really important, and this is a learning for us at the Budget and Policy Center, too, to talk about the areas we need to divest from as well. Um, today, actually, I think the House uh, passed a great example of this is the House passed legislation to um, eliminate funding to private detention facilities in Washington state. We have public resources in, in our state just as across the country, going into systems that cause harm um, and that are so deeply entrenched with structural racism that they're sort of not salvageable at some point. And so that's a perfect example of a policy moving right now that is essentially taking that money back from a system that is not doing good for our communities. Um, and it's exciting to see that moving through the House. And I know also that you have adopted the priorities of the Washington for Black Lives Coalition. We did a show with them here, which I will encourage people to go and revisit because they break down uh, so much of, you know, their legislative agenda talks about so much of this, demilitarizing the police, investing in BIPOC communities, investing in communities of, of concern commission, uh, which is working to grow financial capital assets in Washington's community of color, on and on and on. Uh, Sharon, I want to bring you uh, back into the conversation, talk about your organization. Tell us briefly what the Equity in Education Coalition does. Um, so we, so I founded the organization in August of 2012 um, because there was a growing concern out of the out of the communities of color and the leadership that the state was going to defund uh, public services like um, the safety net and TANF and all of these services that others have brought up to fund education. Uh, August 2012 was uh, about four months after the McCleary decision was brought down by the state Supreme Court. So there was a whole bunch of us that were pretty much thinking, oh, God, like we, we've got to figure something out so that we can both fund education and fund all the other services. It, it, we're We're often struck in this binary thinking of if we want to fund education, we have to cut from other services. And the reality is, is that it it, I, it it sort of is a math problem. We need to we need to figure out how better to fund the services so that the services aren't as needed as much. Um, I always find it ironic that we 
tax low-income families to support programs that low-income families need because they're low-income, right? So it just, it's the stupidest system I've ever thought of. So (laughs) up until- And it's self-perpetuating, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's self-perpetuating. So up until uh, last year, we were an education policy organization and then COVID hit. And one of the things that, that became very clear very quickly was that the public systems, whether it was public health, education, they were just not ready for a pandemic and they weren't ready for a pandemic and how it was going to affect communities of color. Um, so we uh, piv- we pivoted completely to COVID rapid response. Uh, and in, in that, um, we handed out hundreds of thousands of masks, hand sanitizers, um, and we also realized that one of the biggest issues that we were coming up against was that the the infrastructure of Washington State when it comes to broadband, internet, and high-speed access to to the internet was woefully underfunded. And we were about 30 years behind from where other states are. Um, So we have been working for the past year to get internet uh, and broadband to every Washingtonian. Which is, boy, have we seen how uh, integral that is to our lives and also how many iniquities it has exposed. Um, we, we need it to live. We need it to work. It's, it is non-negotiable. And I think there's a movement underway uh, right now by uh, Representative Drew Hansen to at least allow public utilities to enter into the uh, ability to provide uh, public uh, uh, broadband. And so it's a different discussion, but an important one. Um, I will ask you, what sorts of things are you hearing from communities of color about progressive taxation ideas? You know, um, I've been in this work since I've been in the revenue conversation, the progressive tax conversation since 2008. Uh, I think I joined uh, this kind of coalition a month or two after I moved here. So it's it's been a long haul. And the same question resonates no matter what this looks like. At the end of the week, how much money do I have left over? And I, and that's what, what communities want to know, whether they're communities of color, whether they're low income, whether they're rural. At the, at, at the end of the week, on Friday afternoon, folks want to know how much of my paycheck do I have left? How much of my social security do I have left? How much after I pay all my bills, do I have to at some point make that really horrible decision between buying the internet or buying food? And never has that been such a more disgusting decision to make than now when we're in the middle of a pandemic and the internet is the only thing that's holding us together. Kids are going to school online. Um, There are mental health issues that can be taken care of online. People are doing telehealth, e-visits with their their insurance companies. Um, And at the end of the day, most most of the people that I want to that I talk to want to know how much money are they going to have for food? Why are they spending so much money on on services that they don't they wouldn't need if they weren't low income? And how how is it that we still home thousands of, of millionaires and billionaires and they don't pay their fair share? Well, speaking of which, and we're about to get into current legislation, I have just gotten word that with, and this is obviously a a fluid situation because there's floor action happening as we speak. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding that the wealth tax and the estate tax uh, have gone down. But uh, before I say that definitively, I would love it if somebody in the audience could get 
um, some sort of confirmation on that uh, for me as we proceed. But let's do talk about, I, I, will, I would like to talk about them because I think they're tremendous ideas, um, but let's start with capital gains. So this is Senator June Robinson's bill, this is SB 5096. Um, a lot of people very under, very excited about this, uh, but I think a lot of other people see it as kind of a hard sell because they may not understand its mechanisms, what it does, why it's a big deal. So Misha, I will bring you back in. Can you explain what capital gains is, how it works, who would be impacted at what level, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And there've been, you know, some different proposals. This um, idea of taxing capital gains in Washington state um, has been around for almost a decade. So um, speaker, now speaker Lori Jenkins sponsored legislation in the house. The governor has proposed this multiple times. Um, there've been different proposals with some differences in the technicalities of them, but Fundamentally, what this proposal is, is a modest tax, 7 to 9%, depending on the proposal, on the profits from the sale of financial and other high-valued assets. And it only applies to um, at the, those profits above a certain threshold. So in the most recent proposal, it would be profits over $250,000 a year. So what we're talking about here is a proposal that impacts, um, we just got these numbers, it's less than 0.2% of Washingtonians. Um, so several thousand households who are in the very wealthiest segment that you know highest paying 3% of their income in state and local taxes, um, who are really able to enjoy those profits from kind of the ongoing sale of extremely high valued assets. Um, and the, the challenge with this proposal in some ways is that most people don't have that, right? So most people in Washington state are not experiencing profits from capital assets. They, you know, in many ways don't know what capital gains are. And because our tax code is so um, deeply um, dependent on the resources of the lowest income among us, um, there is fear about this, you know, who is this going to apply to? So it's really important to actually um, have the information about who is kind of impacted by the proposal. I'm going to share one more uh, slide um, that we just um, put out today that um, does show kind of who's impacted by the current proposal, Senate Bill 5096. So um, this chart, um, for those of you that can see it, it shows along the bottom those income um, segments, again, lowest income, second lowest middle income, um, and then you get up into the wealthiest 1%. And what this shows you is that is really the change under this proposal. So um, this proposal, which is, um, I will say, the most progressive tax change in 90 years in Washington state, um, if it passes, would raise taxes on the wealthiest 1% by about 0.9%. So um, one of my colleagues joked that it was an amount only the accountants would notice <laughs> um, for those kind of super wealthy households. And then for folks making 297 to $660,000, it's 0.003%. And no one under that level of income is impacted at all by this proposal. Um, and so we're really talking about the tool that the wealthiest individuals use to build and accumulate wealth, which is through um, investments in the stock market and a really modest tax 
on those investments to be able, in this proposal, raise sustainable revenue for childcare and early learning, a dramatic crisis for you know hundreds of thousands of households all across Washington state, um, frankly, both before the pandemic, but even more so now. And then um, also investments in tax fairness and tax equity and reducing the regressive nature of our tax code. So to me, it's, um, you know, a common sense proposal um, that will have very little impact actually on the folks who are paying the tax because it is so modest, um, but is kind of a step towards getting to the type of tax code that we could actually be proud of in Washington state. Um, instead of being ashamed to be the worst in the nation, this would be a huge step forward. Sharon, I understand that this would raise some $550 million, $350 million of which would go to education. How would you like to see that spent? Um, I think we're going to have to uh, do a whole podcast on education funding. Uh, that Please. is uh, that is absolutely my sweet spot and can talk about it for months, evidently. Um, I, I think the whole, the, I, the way that we fund education is a disaster. It is not, um, it is not situated for, for the kids. We, I always think about how we offer programs to kids that are doing the worst, right? That for whom the system is just not working. Um, and we, we don't fund that way. We, um, we fund by, by historically racist, um, policies. We, we fund um, school districts um, to, to, to maintain the high level of, of teacher salaries in, in really affluent areas, but we don't fund the same teachers for the same, for the same salary in really low-income areas. And then we, we talk about how the youngest teachers, the least experienced teachers, the, the sort of cheapest teachers are going to low-income areas, but we're not changing those funding structures. I think, I think we need to have more, we need to have more school nurses, we need to have more counselors, we need to have more principals, we definitely need to have more teachers. Uh, we need to lower the classroom size to something manageable to 15 to 20 kids per, school, per classroom. There's so much that I want to do with, you know, $550 million that, uh, you know, we just have to, we have to revolutionize how we educate our kids. I can't see everybody, but I hear parents nodding their heads along with what you're saying. So uh, right now, um, I'm afraid I'm a, in a bit of a Schrodinger's cat moment in which I don't know if 1406 uh, is still alive right now. So let's go ahead and just talk about it as if it is. Oh, wait. So the, I'm getting something here. Uh, uh, 1406, the wealth uh, tax bill and the estate tax bill never got action in executive session, so they are effectively dead. So let's just no, talk about no, they're not they're not applicable to the cutoff. OK, so, th th yeah. thank you for so clarifying the, that. Yeah. OK, so good. So, then, then let's go ahead and talk about both of those, because um, I certainly uh, Representative Frames wealth tax has gotten so much uh, coverage this year. This would impose a one percent tax on individuals with a net worth of over a billion dollars or more. It would bring in an estimated two point twenty five billion in uh, 2023, 2.5 billion in 2024. And Treasurer, I will just ask you this because I've tried to think about uh, this from, you know, the opposition standpoint. Um, what are the arguments against this from Republicans? The majority of their constituents aren't billionaires. What are they saying about this? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question, right? Um, and I think your question is a good one because like, what is the argument that you can, can can make here? When you have, you know, here in Washington state, we have 
Um, uh, you know, we have 14 billionaires um, in Washington state who like their combined um, income is over $455 billion, um, which is a lot. <laughs> and at um, 1%, you can do the math and that's a lot of money in the coffers. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Um, you know, another piece I, I, I would just say is that, you know, um, the, you know the, to the top four billionaires in Washington state just from the beginning of the pandemic up through January. So not even not even um, uh, till now, but up through up through January and just about a year, um, they their wealth grew by one hundred and twenty nine billion dollars. This is that Nick Hanauer pitchfork moment that, uh, that we've <laughs> yeah, all been talking it, about. It, it really yeah. it really is. Um, you know, and so I think one of the things that we've heard from folks is that, uh, you know, when we've heard from the opposition as well, they might move. Well, yeah, I guess they could. And currently they're not paying taxes on, you know, they're not paying taxes on that now. So it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, that, that's just, that's a. Well, and also uh, the that dog I, don't hunt. <laughs> right, as you as you said to me earlier, because you're a Utah girl, that dog don't hunt. I like that. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. and ultimately, if they go elsewhere in the United States, they're going to face income tax. They're going to face capital gains tax. So it doesn't make sense for them to move. And besides, Washington's awesome. So you're, exactly. it's uh, it's it's worth it to to be here. Um, let's do talk about uh, Representative Tina Orwall's estate tax. This is a HB. 1465. Um, I don't know if we have word that it is still going, uh, but Misha, this is opaque. I will just ask you, and as you can see, we're bumping up against the clock here, and I really do want to get to some audience questions. So can you just explain this really quickly? What 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 is what does the estate tax do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, what the estate tax is in some ways the bright spot of Washington's tax code from an economic justice lens. So um, it is one of the most progressive sources of revenue that you could possibly have. Um, it's a small source of revenue for Washington state, but basically it really is a way, a tool for um, funding public investments by preventing the accumulation of wealth across generations. And so um, the hearing on this bill, um, this, this tax is already in place, but this bill closes some loopholes and helps make the estate tax even more progressive, funds um, some investments in housing equity, and yeah, hopefully it will move forward. Um, at the hearing on this, there was um, you know, really strong support from people who, you know, actually would be the beneficiaries of estates, potentially very large estates saying, really, the kind of community that I want to live in is one maybe where I can inherit some money, but also where we actually have the investments in our public systems like schools and healthcare um, that make this a great place to live and that that is part of kind of the, the generational um, gift that we want to give to one another. Um, so uh, hopeful that this bill will still move forward. To Treasurer's point earlier, many of these revenue bills get taken up at the very end of session. So um, we'll keep hope alive on this one. Generational gift, I think, is the best way to put that. I mean, my goodness, we want to we want an educated workforce. We want roads. We want we want all of the public services here. And uh, that that takes, uh, you know, a, a, a big investment in taxes and a fair investment in taxes. So uh, I will just mention and we've talked about this already, so I don't think we need to spend much time on it. But Representative Meeland ties working class or working family tax credit. This is 1297. Uh, it's also known as the recovery 
recovery rebate. Um, and Misha, I know this is a top priority for the Budget and Policy Center, and it has some momentum. Um, 25 to 8 in the House Appropriations Committee. Um, this is a bipartisan vote. I will just ask you very briefly, Misha, what you make of that and how you see its chances. I'm really hopeful. You know, it's um, I think it is important that folks, regardless of political party, are saying, you know what, we do want to do something to get cash out to people um, and recognizing this is a tool for our economic recovery. So welcome everyone to join in that fight. There's about 45 organizations that are involved in this coalition from the Poverty Action Network to the State Coalition Against Domestic Violence, many labor unions, United Way of King County. Um, so the advocacy community is similarly diverse. And, um, you know, I think that this is the year to fund this. I heard that, you know, this policy actually passed in Washington State or a similar policy back in 2008. And so this is a promise that the legislature has made to Washingtonians and never followed through on. And so what time, like what excuse could there be for not acting right now to get this um, to get this moving forward and actually get money out to people and address this structural inequity in our tax code. Um, we can't wait another year. 13 years is mm. is long enough. So um, I'm, I'm very hopeful and Representative Ty is um, championing this policy with all her heart. Yes, she is. And she's a favorite of ours here on the on the town hall series. Uh, can I ask you to stay for Can each of you stay for like another five minutes or so so we can answer some audience questions? Terrific. So um, I will uh, aim this at you, Treasure. Uh, April asks, how can progressive taxation bring about positive change for small businesses? Um, your organization had a, a pretty successful campaign about this. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So I think there's a couple. I think there's a couple of pieces. Um, first off, you know we know that especially right now, small businesses are absolutely struggling. Uh, you know we have um, we have a, 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 a cohort of small businesses from all across the state, about sixty different small businesses, many restaurant and hospitality folks who've signed on um, in support of progressive revenue because they recognize that. We need to make sure that money is flowing into our communities. They know these small businesses know that, you know, for customers to come into their doors, whether it's picking up takeout or dinner or shopping in their stores, people need to have money in their pockets. And um, this, you know, this is one of the things that's so absolutely critical. And it's important for small businesses because not only are small businesses then able to stay open um, and be able to, you know, take care, um, stay open, provide jobs for their employees, um, uh, and 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 take care of themselves as well. But you know, it's it's this other piece around. Our small businesses are one of the things that just make our community so so special right like um i you know i live in snohomish county up here in edmonds um i love our local spiral businesses um that you know there's something about going to your local restaurant and your local shops um not only do you feel good when you're shopping in those you know when you're when you're shopping in those shops but it really it, it makes it, it builds the fabric of our communities. Um, and small businesses really are a really fundamental driver. Um, so when we are able to pass progressive revenue options, um, you know, options like uh, capital gains or the wealth tax, any kind of all of those pieces, we are able to provide greater investments into our communities in terms of 
you know, money in, in, in people's pockets and making sure that, you know, especially in times like, um, you know, like now we can invest in healthcare, we can invest in education, we can invest in childcare, um, and we can even help provide um, some support to small businesses um, who are struggling mightily at this point in time. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, Julia asks, one of you said earlier that we could read about the history of our regressive tax system, and she wanted to know where. Uh, Misha, Treasure, which of you had said that? And do you have a resource for Julia? I think I, I said it, and I don't have something right handy, but I can follow back up on that. Um, and folks should feel free to share if you have resources. All right. Um, Terrific. I do. We had yeah. some uh, some bipartisan uh, questions about bipartisanship, which I think we may have discussed a little bit uh, as we talked about the the working family tax credit. Um, it, although, uh, you know what, let, let me uh, kind of drill down on this because this dovetails on another question here. Linda asks, how do I frame this topic to, uh, to convince my Republican lawmakers, Representative Gilday and Senator Muzal, to take these needed steps? And I think she's referring to the, the four pieces of legislation that we were uh, talking about earlier. Um, Sharon, do you have any thoughts on that, on how we uh, reach across the aisle to, uh, to our, our Republican friends to, to get them on board with some of this stuff? Uh, what has been really helpful and useful to me is, um, I, you know, sometimes we want to make the moral argument, um, but I, I think sometimes we have to make the, the financial argument uh, more uh, changing the way the tax system uh, uh, benefits those that make the most and harms those that make the least um, actually makes you know, changing that tax system makes makes financial sense. Uh, we can grow the middle class if the middle class has more money to spend into the system. We can grow the middle class and move people out of poverty and out of safety net programs and out of TANF and all of those uh, those programs that um, some folks hate. Uh, <laughs> uh, if they don't have to use those programs, if they have more money at the end of the day to use in small businesses, in the local communities, um, to use, um, you know, for their own benefit. I think, uh, you know, we want to be able to to grow the wealth. Um, it, there's this crazy idea that only the wealthy should be wealthy, and um, you know, I, I, I. I think we have to sort of mitigate that. I mean, everyone should have a chance to live the American dream. Absolutely right. I mean, I think Milton Friedman uh, is uh, is rolling over in his grave now as we've finally definitively said 50 years later, no, trickle-down economics doesn't work. And the sorts of uh, taxation structures that you are looking at, in fact, I, I would, I'm looking for this report here from the Budget and Policy Center that shows that progressive revenue creates over 60,000 jobs, increases consumer spending by $4 billion, grows the state's GDP by almost $6 billion. So, I don't know if that's going to convince any Republicans, but it's certainly something that I think we as progressives uh, should be talking about. So I would love to close on uh, some action steps because I think people really mm -hmm. want to know what they can do. Uh, Misha, you are uh, part of a coalition called Balance Our Tax Code that is doing actions as we speak this very week. What are people doing? 
Yeah, so Balance Our Tax Code is another partner in this effort, and they've been um, organizing with uh, many folks around a week of action this week. Um, so they had uh, events yesterday um, and today. Um, coming up is a social media day of action and phone bank tomorrow. Um, and most importantly, I think an easiest to do is to do an email action. So there have been a number of links shared, um, but really Balance Our Tax Code, like many of us, is calling on the legislature to pass the capital gains tax and the working families tax credit by March 9th. That's the day that the, um, that, uh, the deadline in some ways, although it doesn't technically apply to these bills, um, but for house for bills to pass out of the first chamber, either the House or the Senate. And so advocates want to see action on those bills by March 9th um, and are calling on uh, legislators to to make that happen in the next two weeks. So um, that action is in the in the link there. Good, good, good. I was going to say, I thought you were going to drop some links in there. And so you did. Uh, Treasurer, what would you like to, to see people doing in support of this legislation? Well, it, it, particularly with capital gains right now, um, you know, as, as Misha mentioned, it is all about contacting and connecting with your legislator. Um, they need to they need to hear from you. And most importantly, they need to hear why you care. Um, anything that we you can do that tells a little bit about who you are, why this is important to you, why you know why you tuned in tonight to listen, um, why this matters. Um, at the end of the day, you know, this, the, our legislators are, are down in Olympia. They're there to represent us. Um, and us sharing our stories as constituents of sharing why these pieces of legislation are really impactful and that are really motivating for us is probably the most important thing that we can do. So whether you pick up the phone and call your legislator directly, you send a tweet and you tag them in the tweet or you send them an email whatever you can do to contact your legislature uh, legislator and i would say early and often every single day until it passes um, is really impactful and then also having this conversation with your friends and your family because we know it is going to take all of us um, speaking up and talking about this and uh, you know the importance of uh, building a, a more equitable and more fair tax system that works for all Washingtonians. Because um, this fight's not going to be over at the end of this legislative session. It's going to continue on, and we've got a lot of work to do. I like a good uh, Mayor Daley uh, reference. Uh, early and often. <laughs> early and often, absolutely. And so, uh, Sharon, uh, what Treasurer is just referring to was what I wanted to ask you about as we close. I'll give you the final word tonight. Uh, many of us are just extremely, almost myopically focused on the action in this session. But your organization thinks much longer term. Taking long view, what is next after this session and after this session and after this session? Um, a couple of things. We need to have more representation of our own people in the legislature. We need to have representation um, at every level of elected uh, of elected position. Um, the, there are so many decisions that are being made by school board members, by uh, hospital commissioners, um, you know, by council members. Um, you know, I, I think we need to... Um, as progressives, we pride ourselves in being active all the time, uh, but we're not always active. I, I think we get this synergy around the presidential. Um, and uh, the reality is, is that all of the work happens between the, the four years, right? So we've got we've to get out, we've got to mobilize. Um, 
you know, like like Treasure said, we have to have this conversation um, with our, our friends and families. Uh, I remember when I first moved here, we were still having the argument about um, the income tax and the, the fear mongering that um, if you pass income tax for people that make over 250,000, who knows what Olympia will do next? It just, it, it, it just drove me absolutely crazy. And the reality is, is that, um, you know, we're all part of, the, as, to bring it back to the very beginning, um, the way you said it, we're all part of a social contract uh, and we all have to pay our fair share into that social contract so that we're not all um, living in poverty. Um, and the reality is, is that the, the um, Black, Indigenous, and communities of color were just getting out of the 2008 recession when the 2012 code recession hit. And we have to make sure that our communities, our restaurant owners, our small business owners, our teachers, our paraeducators, and our healthcare workers, that they that they make make it out of this alive. And it's it's really about life and death here. I think a lot of people in the activist community, and I will just say this, I think a lot of people in the non-BIPOC uh, activist community are starting to come around to this idea, as we've seen over the last four years, um, that it was basically a daily uh, dumpster fire that uh, people like Stacey Abrams, people like Beto O'Rourke, organizers on the ground in Arizona, were very, very focused, and they know that a perpetual ground game and the sorts of things that you're talking about, the constant engagement, are the things that make progress, are the things that uh, to, that ultimately uh, uh, win the war. So um, I am so grateful to each of you for taking so much time. Thank you for the extra time tonight in particular. Uh, Misha Warschel, uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Treasure Mackley, thank you. Thank you so much. It was an honor. And Sharon Navas, thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Misha Wershkel, Treasure Mackley, and Sharon Navas. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin, Louise Pathé, Robin Gittleman, and Kevin Jones. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.